I mean, it's important to me. I want to figure out God. I want to figure out how this spiritual power works. I want to, I guess, scratch that itch. There's this image that comes up in South Asian poetry a lot of the the pearl, how a pearl comes from this itch. You layer onto that. For me, that edge of everyday reality and this bigger reality around us is that grain of sand that I'm constantly scratching at. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. Welcome to In Good Faith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. In studio today with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And just a quick reminder, this is an experiment. Instead of our hour-long episodes that feature one guest in the first half, one in the second. We're releasing them, one on Sunday, one on Wednesday. So you actually get two different interviews, and you can listen in kind of a shorter little window. And we'd love for you to tell us if this works for you, if this is an improvement. Send an email to ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Today we're speaking with James Goldberg, who... Is just such a fascinating person <laughs> on paper. And then when you meet him, he's just as fascinating in, in person. Yes, and he writes everything, right? He's a, he's a playwright, he's a poet, he's a fiction writer. Um, you can find a lot of his work right now at Wayfair, which is from the Faith Matters group, and uh, look for that magazine online. James is going to tell us about his very, very interesting background from uh, both Jewish and Sikh culture. So you'll learn more about that. Real quickly, though, he has Jewish, European, and Punjabi ancestors, and his grandfather, Gucharan Singh Gill, as far as can be told, is the first Sikh to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. James is a contributor to the Saints History Project with the church, and he's on the board for the Association of Mormon Letters, served as its president from 2020 to 2021. James has published two novels, four collections of poetry, and two other books, and is the 2024 Storymakers Award recipient for his multi-faith writing. He had an interesting cultural change happen in his family, starting with one of his grandfathers, and that's what I asked him about. He came from Punjab to the United States in the 1950s. His older sister, she was very close in age to him, and they they were emotionally close, and she got sick, and at that time there just weren't enough hospitals, and they were closed at night. And so he went with her to the hospital. They tried to get in. Hospital said, we can't take you till the morning, and she died. That night he was there. A couple months after that, maybe not even a couple months, his his baby brother had just been born. There were 11 kids in the family, big Punjabi farming family. And he'd had health problems since he was born, and my grandpa would stay up at night giving him medicine, and then he also died. So when he came to the U.S. for education, was at Fresno State at first for for college. He was also kind of looking for these religious answers. And Latter-day Saint view of work in the spirit world and the idea that you can forge eternal families, even for people who never heard about these ideas in their life, what really struck him powerfully. And after extended, I think he read Jesus the Christ as well as the standard works before he got baptized. Very systematic, but... But yeah, in the 1950s, he got baptized. And as far as we know, he's the first Sikh. So how 
How much of that tradition were you aware of as a young man growing up? And what was the religious atmosphere in your home? So I grew up around a lot of Sikhism. It was like part of my imaginationscape, I guess you could say, as a kid. And then my grandpa really felt like there's 10 Sikh gurus. He thought of them as prophets. And then Joseph Smith was just number 11 uh, in this sort of continuation. So, uh-huh. so I don't think for him, his conversion felt in any way like a rejection of those Sikh roots. It felt like adding this additional layer. And so, so yeah, we very much grew up with stories of Sikh heroes and Sikh gurus and, and a deep respect for that tradition. Which might seem really, if you belong to a church that has a president who is also a prophet, to seem very familiar. Right, right. Those things, I mean, and it's interesting, these are two of the youngest religious traditions in the world, lots of churches and denominations, but sort of recognized uh, as having a history, a culture. Both of them have this place where they're the critical mass and there's a majority and then a big diaspora where they're the minority have ended up crossing paths a lot in interfaith settings. So yeah, I think it was a good way to grow up and and in our family it did feel like that this wasn't competition. These were just two sources of truth to draw. And my my brother used to joke that in some ways it's tough to grow up with three religions in the house. Because one you can reject. Once you have three religions telling you the same sort of thing, it's harder to get around. <laughs> there might be something. Like, there's probably something there. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about the Jewish tradition yeah, coming so, through your family. So my my dad's side of the family, his dad was was Jewish. And he'd always call on the phone and used to kind of rib us about things like how many Nobel Prizes have Mormons won? Um, and later we finally got one. So, but, but, but again, one. So, so anyway, he'd, he'd send us books and things. And personally, he was not religious, but invested in the, the tradition. And then there, there were other family members on that side who were different kinds of religious and connected to Judaism in different ways. So I sort of got to see a spectrum. And then growing up, there were like some holidays that, that we would do. Hanukkah is really easy. Passover is like maybe my favorite holiday. Mm. I love Passover. And those were just ways of kind of holding on to that, that Jewish memory and a different way of looking at things, right? Did you always believe in God? You were obviously taught. Yeah, <laughs> I did. And not not everybody does, and I think that makes sense, right? Like intellectually, totally get the questions. I think I've just more intuitively believed in that something, God and a reality beyond the side of reality that, that I can get on that intellectual level. I think really early intuitively, yeah, I, d- I just did believe in that. And then I think there's, there's obviously layers to that belief building as I had different experiences where I would connect, say, a prophet. I remember Gordon B. Hinckley giving one particular address where I just felt that sort of prophetic force, right? Mm-hmm. That, that extra something beyond the words. And I went, yes, I've believed that we have prophets and this man is a prophet, but here's a moment where I, I felt the force of that. I remember other moments too, though, just my freshman year of college, I was in a fourth floor dormitory and looking out the window kind of eye to eye with a tree. Trees are wonderful, right? They're so huge and they have this different scale that they exist on in, in time and space. 
And just really having in that moment that feeling of connection to creation very powerfully. That maybe like South Asian spirituality is mm. better at explaining, but but from a Latter-day Saint perspective, we believe too that there's this, this spiritual power, this intelligence in everything, and feeling just for a moment really linked to that. So I think there's these lots of little spark moments for me that build on a, a gradual process of unfolding understanding. But it seems like not only delving into the Latter-day Saint tradition, that you have taken the time to explore truths and culture in both the Sikh tradition and the Jewish traditions. I mean, it's important to me. I want to figure out God. <laughs> I want to figure out how this spiritual power works. I want to, I guess, scratch that itch. There's this image that comes up in South Asian poetry a lot of the the pearl, right? How a mm -hmm. pearl comes from this itch. Yes. You layer onto that. For me, sometimes that that edge of life and death, that edge of everyday reality and this bigger reality around us is that grain of sand that I'm constantly scratching at. And I'm, I'm grabbing on whatever I can. Obviously, I feel the most connection to the ones that I kind of grew up with, that I've got this family history, spirit of Elijah connection to. But I feel like an attitude of curiosity can only serve you. And, and so how has that served your... What I'm picturing is, is that you're looking at God from different angles. I don't know if that's... Maybe you have a better metaphor. You are a poet, after all. <laughs> but I'm just building on what you said. Do you feel like you've, you've expanded your understanding because of those explorations? So I'll give you one example, right? Latter-day Saints, one difference you find if you're doing interfaith discussions with, like, Protestants is you realize we talk about God as our Father, and we mean that, like, really literally. Where in a lot of Christian tradition, that's more a metaphor. God loves us like a Father, but we're, we're creations, right? For some, there's this process by which you become a child of God. It's not the same as the Latter-day Saint belief. This is just what we are, Right. But then when you go to the Dharmic faith, Sikhism, Hinduism, there's all this imagery of God as the ocean and we're a drop. That like a water cycle came out of God and is flowing back to merge into God. A temporary separation from the whole. Yes. And obviously as a Latter-day Saint, I view that merging back into God differently. I think of deification, exaltation, becoming like God, inheriting this full measure of godliness, and yet... This idea that we have a divine essence shows up in both. And I think in some ways, when you go to like a Sikh contemplative tradition, you think about that different ways, right? I think as Latter-day Saints, we think of exaltation so much forward-looking. Okay, I'm a child of God. That's important to me now. But I'm also trying to unfold this godliness. But in Sikh tradition, there's, there's more of a history of saying, how do you recognize just what's there now. What are ways that you can get in touch with that divine essence in the moment? And I think that's real. I think that's important. A different language maybe gets me there faster. I remember on my mission when we talked about restoration, what does restoration mean? And what do we believe about apostasy? We'd say, okay, here's Christ Church that has all these different parts, and we'd like take little cups and build a tower, and then, okay, if you take some apart, the tower falls down, but every religion's got a piece, and we believe we're putting pieces back together. And I remember one night saying to my missionary companion, 
if everybody's got a piece, they're probably better at it than we are. Uh-huh. They've thought more about that aspect. Judaism is one where where this idea of like covenant history and God's memory unfolding under time, that's a huge theme of Book of Mormon. The word remember comes up again and again and again. And yet Judaism like has done a lot more work thinking about God over time, God in, in history, and what it means to remember through really difficult times. I think they've just thought about it in different ways than we as this young tradition that claims really old roots. We've got important tools, but they're, but they're different ones, right? And so we're getting it at the same objective through different languages, different experiences. This is In Good Faith. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. When you talk about current events, do you ever feel like you have to tiptoe around people you know or maybe even family members because it seems like some topics are just like landmines? Can I even bring up this topic and have a civil discussion without starting a civil war within my family? Check out the podcast Top of Mind with award-winning journalist Julie Rose. Top of Mind dives into those tough topics, but it does it in a way that actually models how to have intelligent conversations, ask questions out of sincere curiosity, seeking to understand. Top of Mind is not trying to take a position and change your mind or persuade you. It is exploring. You'll come away with more empathy and clarity so that you can become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, even family member. Listen to Top of Mind wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm chatting with James Goldberg, historian, writer, and poet. So you've been a contributing writer to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Project, which is a series of books detailing the history of the church. It's called Saints. And if I can quote you here, it's a seismic shift in how Latter-day Saints are approaching our history. So there was a time, I think, when it was really emphasized that we, we should pick the most inspiring moment of someone's life or, or of us as a people. That's what should be foregrounded. But we live in a different time now where there's so much access to knowledge that I wonder if you talk about the thinking yeah. that led to this. So when I think about church history and when I started in 2013 working for the church history department, an observation I had pretty early was that we've sort of passed through three cultures. The early saints had a very oral culture of history. What was Joseph Smith like? Well, somebody was there. Well into the end of the 19th century, you can go to testimony meetings where people are just telling Nauvoo stories still. From their own lives. From their own lives. And Mm. so that was the way people experienced history. And then sometime in the 20th century, you know, it starts mass media, broadcast media becomes our model. We're adapting and taking all these stories we've got and saying, how do we compress them down into one message? And in broadcast media, there really is one simple message that goes out. And we weren't the only organization doing this. And everybody sort of knew that this is aspirational thinking. And what I've said about church history is in that era, we started taking what I call a mascot approach to church history, where we would take somebody like Joseph Smith and say, well, what do we believe in now? What are our values now? And how can stories about Joseph Smith represent all that? And Joseph (laughs) was not always 
I don't know how he would have felt about that, right? Because he was at an early stage in this process of God shaping a tradition. He doesn't necessarily, his life doesn't stand up. Self-reliance would be one, right? Here we have in Doctrine and Covenants, God telling Joseph Smith, you're never going to be good at money, Joseph, and that's not your calling and it's okay. And yet we've kind of wanted him to stand in for all these virtues. So I think through the late 20th century, when I grew up, You had sort of one message going out, and it was this idealized message. And it's going to be a message that we think can translate across difference, that can be more acceptable to the same sort of people where in the 19th century, it's almost the opposite. We're trying to say, how do we declare independence? How do we make sure that we are not just sucked back into the gravity of the sort of Protestant majority religious discourse in this country? Once the internet comes around— You don't have organizations existing in a world where there's one message going out and everybody's sort of just passively receiving it, right? It's this much more multivocal environment. Everybody can say something. And so what are our expectations of story in a time when everyone can speak? And we start to value authenticity in a different way. We start to value just a diversity within a story in a different way. I I used to joke with my colleagues, for everybody who leaves the church because they think it might not be true, there are two people who drift away because they know it's boring, right? (laughs) This week-to-week experience, if they're still getting the one story, but they're living in this much more technicolor story world— It just gets dull, right? And that's a problem. So part of what we were trying to do, not only with saints, but with that sort of generation of church history projects is how do we speak in this different language that's multivocal, that's closer to the ground and lived experience, that doesn't make everybody be a mascot. But I said, now we should think of church history as laboratories of discipleship. We're trying stuff out, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And both can be instructive. All these things, as the Doctrine and Covenants says, shall give the experience and can be to thy good. And so we hoped if we could tell stories in a way that acknowledged those ups and downs, that readers would extend the charity to figures in the past to make up the difference and, and transform their failures into experience. I think that's putting a great deal of trust in readership and and a chance for growth from readers. And I'm curious, now that there's been enough time, I think, gone by that you can have, do you have a way of gauging reaction or feedback in in different ways? Right after Saints Volume 1 came out, I remember a friend, co-worker, who had a friend texting him as she's reading. So real-time. Real-time reactions, right? And one of the things she said is, wow, it is incredible this church survived. (laughs) And that's when I knew we'd succeeded. What that told me is saints is working as literature. And here are people feeling along with the early saints. And so they recognized this was an experiment, right? And it's incredible that they were able to make it through. I think we benefit more when we don't have the expectation that, of course, the first generation of saints, like mascots, had it all figured out and are perfect, and our, our job is just to live up to them. When we realize instead that we're together, we're co-creators in this, in this story of discipleship, I think that's fundamentally a more healthy approach to our history. And, and I think saints communicated that. And as much as any detail, I think it's that mindset that we wanted to share. 
I'm wondering if I can ask you to act as a small letter G guru for a moment (laughs) with what I think is a head start you have on the whole concept that we've been encouraged by Russell N. Nelson, current president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to become aware of and even to root out prejudice of all, all kinds, both for people's origins, for race, for language, for whatever it might be, all types. And are you surprised because you, you have investigated and pulled together so many different parts of your heritage that it seems must give you a wider view of admiration and love for these different traditions and people who speak different languages, are different races, come from different countries and cultures. Are you ever surprised by narrow-mindedness from people who haven't experienced that? So rooting out prejudice goes hand-in-hand with building up affection. I remember we had, I grew up mostly in Columbus, Ohio, and we had good Congolese friends in our ward. And I remember my little sister, she must have been like five or six at the time, going over one night to Magongo's and coming back and saying like, oh, it just smells so weird there. Like, I don't, I'm not sure I trust this, this cooking, it smells weird. And I'm 12 years older than that sister, right? So would have been in high school, late high school. And I already knew other people think we smell weird, right? Because Indian, Indian food has a strong smell. And what you cook, and sometimes you, right? Because if you've got that smell on you still, when you're going to school, like if people didn't grow up with it, they, they notice they're attuned. Since then, I remember talking to people about how if we want to build tolerance, right, you got to teach the nose and not just the mind. It's not, it's not only an abstract thing. We've got to be experientially exposed to one another. And I do think you get cumulative strength, right? I don't know every culture in the world, but I've gotten used to navigating multiple cultures. And at that point, when I smell something new, I don't go, this is weird. I go, this is new, right? This is different. And I can approach it with curiosity. That's a really great differentiation. This isn't necessarily weird, which sometimes equates to scary, threatening. Yeah, scary, negative, yeah. But new, Yep. To be understood. Yes. But I I do think it's a process, right? And I think a lot of times because there are negative moral effects to prejudice, we approach that question through a very moralizing lens to go, oh, if you're prejudiced, you're a bad person. But a lot of what that seems to lead to is just denial. (laughs) That people have a hard time dealing with prejudice because you can't talk about it. And, And I wish we'd say more, we need to nurture intercultural affection. And I actually think a lot of places, a Latter-day Saint ward can be a really effective place to do that because you've got the tools there. You you know people who you're already going to spend time with. It's not an extra task. The thing you need is, is the curiosity. And a lot of times you need to give other people permission to share because some people get used to those negative feedback signals of, oh, that's weird, that's strange. And so there's a tendency to to sort of shell up and not necessarily share everything. And so I think if an award, if you can be proactive about asking other people and inviting them and giving them positive feedback when they share some things that are unique about their family and background, whatever they look like, right? You might be surprised sometimes what you find out about somebody you would have expected had a similar experience to you, and they didn't. 
But I think as, as we proactively give permission and people share, there can start to be this positive feedback effect, right? Where we come to appreciate each other and through that build up these skills that we can then take to lots of different experiences. And I should say, a lot of Latter-day Saints are also good about getting out proactively into interfaith spaces outside of the church. And that can be a really quick, important way to do that, right? Is just spending time together, serving shoulder to shoulder alongside each other, you start to get used to things. And I think the kind of affection and tolerance that builds up naturally that way is a really helpful angle to do some of this rooting out of attitudes you don't even realize you have because they're just an inherited part of, of the culture you got. So we've had several several different metaphors from Eastern and Western thought. One is thinking of different faiths like languages that we brought up. And he gave such a visceral example of, of uh, his sister coming from a friend's house and saying, it's, it's weird over there, meaning their food smells different than our food. Yeah, And that's just such a visceral example of cultural difference. If you've never been around curry, if you've never been about whatever spice it might be or way of cooking, that is a pretty good metaphor for, you might say, it's weird over there. They pray differently. They hold their hands differently when they pray. They face a certain direction, whatever it might be. It's also, I think, so helpful for us who are invested in inner faith to think one more time. I think we say this a lot, but one more time, you don't have to give up your own tradition in order to appreciate and learn from other traditions, right? One thing that was so fascinating to me was James talking about his grandfather who had followed the 10 Sikh gurus and then felt that in his new tradition as being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that there's also a president prophet. And that was just a continuation. It was not a rejection of his past, but a continuation. I, I didn't. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. No, I love that, and I also love. I think what goes along with that, what parallels that, is his discussion of how we think of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. That we don't need people to be perfect in our history um, in order for us to accept that they were trying something brand new, that they were making mistakes like we do, and that we're in it together, right? And I love his phrase, laboratories of discipleship, (laughs) right? That person is experimenting, and it hadn't ever been done before, and I'm experimenting too, right? And I'm not perfect, and I'm just working. I'm just working hard to do what I can to live the gospel. I just, that idea has been great. I love it. Many thanks to James Goldberg for being our guest today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Katarina Martinich, Josh Orton, and Ashton Rowan. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure you leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast, and on YouTube. Check out our videos, youtube.com slash at in hyphen good hyphen faith. 
In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith.